You know, the church board and uh, the elders and several of the other leaders have contributed to a set of visions that we've seen from being good neighbors in our community to uh, discipling people and, and also to share the gospel. And we've articulated these vision statements, and I want to share two of them with you today. Um, the, the series that we're beginning today is called Everything's Better in Community. And we're going to do a three-part series. Today, we're going to do a, a talk about family. And I felt like these uh, two vision statements were particularly appropriate. And the first one says, we see healthy relationships, families, siblings, marriages, friends, and dating couples where God's self-sacrificing love is evident in our interactions with each other. Isn't that a nice thing to consider? What would, what would it be like if this church, if this community had healthy relationships everywhere? And we were known for that. The second one is a vision about the small group idea that, that um, we were discussing, or we have been discussing a bit. And the vision says, we see a variety of missional small groups meeting in different homes in the community, which disciple church members, attract into their, their groups former members and people who are newly interested in Jesus, and which are engaging in missionary efforts that are unique to the gifts the Holy Spirit has given their group. Now, what would it be like if our church had that kind of a, a mindset? I mean, I, I just thanked several individuals and, and a, a small group for doing some taking some initiative in ministering to this church community. Um, Those are little things, but they make a big difference, don't they? They have a big impact. What would it be like if everybody was involved in some way or another in taking initiative based on God's gifts that they've given them in the context of some small group? I I think that would be uh, a fun experience to see a church that's thriving with small groups like that. I, I know we all want our church to be a healthy church. Would you agree with that? Um, and, and we've kind of articulated these three ideas, uh, being a good neighbor in our community. Um, God, in, in the story of the Good Samaritan, we see what a good neighboring is like. So that, that's a good thing for a church to do, right? And discipling. It, didn't Jesus call us to make disciples? So it would be good if we were a, a church that makes good disciples. And, and isn't the everlasting gospel the thing that, that that's our mission? That's the thing we're supposed to be taking to the world, right? So it would be good if our church was fully embraced or fully engaged in, in sharing the gospel. And these, these three things, good neighboring, disciple making, and sharing the gospel, while they're ideals that we would like our church to have, how do we get there? And we, we're already kind of on that road. It's not like we're not uh, or we're ignoring discipling or completely avoiding sharing the gospel. It's not like we're bad neighbors necessarily, right? But how do we get to the point where we are meeting that ideal? And I thought about the, the different ways that you can do that. And I, I could stand up front and I could tell you what you should do and, and, and how you should do it, right? That's one way to do it. And and about 30% of what I say, you would get, and about 10% of that you'd apply. Um, <laughs> and institutionally, like, it just doesn't work to transfer actions from a pulpit. I can communicate ideas, sermons can, can help to organize theology, it can give us common language, but it's not going to move us in, in action 
Um, and, and so I, I thought, you know, well, you've got the option of creating systems in the church, right? We can have uh, public evangelism. We can have really great um, Wednesday night prayer meetings. We can have great outreaches in the community that we try to get volunteers for, right? And then it's me and a couple of the, the elders um, just straining to get enough volunteers to come and help with some activity. You know how that is, right? And you end up being overwhelmed, so much to do. How, how do you get a church active and effectively accomplishing these good neighboring, discipling, and sharing the gospel? And I think that as I've examined it and as I've looked at research and stuff, the functional system that needs to be in place for a church to grow healthy, healthfully and to succeed in all of these areas are small groups. And, and I see it in the Bible all over the place. Successful uh, missions that are happening in the Bible happen with groups. Jacob had his dozen or so sons. Um, he had a dozen sons and a daughter, I guess. And God made a covenant with them that he was going to, through them, raise up a nation that would be witnesses for the world. And, and then you've got the trio, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. You always thought of it as just Moses, right? But it's Moses, Aaron, and Miriam that take the children of Israel um, under God's leadership out of Egypt. It's a small group that leads there. Samuel, he develops schools where a small group of young men are trained to be spiritual leaders in the, in the nation. And as a result of Samuel's training through the, these uh, small schools, that nation was ennobled spiritually in a way that, that was, it was powerful enough that Elijah and Elisha brought back these schools to try to get the nation out of, uh, of idolatry, right? Then you've got Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know those names, right? Who, who are they? The three Hebrew boys. Okay, good. So Daniel and, those, and his three friends, um, they're, they're so successful as a group, a small group, that, that they have an impact for over 3,000 years, or almost 3,000 years, I should say. And it's not just Christians that remember Daniel and his friends. It's uh, Jews that remember him. And Islam has a, a strong tradition uh, from Daniel, a small group that makes a huge impact. When Jesus began his ministry, he quickly recruited a, a dozen uh, young men. One of them, we think, might have been 17 or 18 at the time. Any 17 or 18-year-olds in the room? 16-year-olds? <laughs> Jesus wants you in his group, too. He recruited a dozen or so guys, spent, spent some time with them, training them, discipling them, and Acts records from an outsider's perspective, not from inside the church, but an outsider's perspective, looking at these disciples, they're like, those are the men that turned the world upside down. A small group can do big things. And I think that that's how God wants our church to be structured. The functional system that will make our church successful I think, is small groups. And, uh, and research shows that when small groups are healthy, the same mechanisms or, 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 or characteristics of a, a healthy small group are required to make a healthy church. One follows the other. Healthy small groups lead to healthy churches. I want to talk about small groups, but I think that, that before we jump into the ideas and strategies about small groups, we need to back up and ask ourselves, what's the building blocks of small groups? And so today I, I want to talk about, I think, the, the most fundamental building block of a small group, which is a family. 
And, and if you think about it, a family is really a small group. In Matthew 18, 20, Jesus says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Notice the equation, a small group of people gathered in Jesus' name, and Jesus is in their midst. How would you like Jesus to dwell with us? Small group of people. There's a, I'm having trouble with my little clicker thing here. There we go. <laughs> I'll try to pull that out of my pocket so it's not in the way. What is a small group? When you think of a small group, what is a small group? I'm going to be really basic just to, to start out our, our discussion. A small group is a group that is small. Are we a church of small groups? Yes, we are. We are structured as a group, a, a, a church of small groups. We have a church board that meets once a month, and it's not very big. We've got maybe 15 or so people that attend that, that church board. That's a small group. No, it's not a small group. Somebody's shaking their head. <laughs> we have Sabbath school classes. They meet regularly. They're a small group. We're going to start, or we, we are starting in January, a group, a small group for uh, men that's focused on developing spiritual leadership called Joshua's Men. Some of you are familiar with that because I've invited you particularly. Um, and, and that's a small group. Um, we've got um, Pathfinder Club, Adventurer Club. We've got a Friday night Bible study meeting at the Cruttenden's home. We've got a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Every one of these are small groups. Whether they're effective, holistic, missional, uh, that, that's another question. But we're a church that's built on small groups. I just want to, to, to point that out. This isn't a big leap from, uh, you know, what we were doing to what we should be doing. We're already doing it. Um, we could probably add some systems to make that more effective. We could probably figure out how to, 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 to tweak it and improve it. And I think that the thing that we need to focus on primarily at the beginning uh, to really make healthy groups in whatever facet we have them, whatever they lo- might look like in our church, is to develop our families. Family is a broad term. It can include grandparents and grandkids. It could include uh, parents, aunts, uncles, children, siblings, cousins, right? Lots of of parts of a family, and every part of the family is legitimate and important. But I want to focus our attention on the nuclear family, husband, wife, children, children specifically that are living in the home. And uh, maybe you don't have a husband or you don't have a wife, um, either you haven't been married or you were married before, that, that's okay. This is still for you. Maybe you don't have children or you don't have children in the home anymore. That, that's okay. Um, what we're going to talk about is still relevant. And it's still relevant because, well, let me just go to the beginning. In the beginning, God created Adam. He designed a beautiful, perfect person. And, and he gave him a job to do. And this was before there was children and before there was an Eve. He created a, a man and he gave him purpose. And there's nothing wrong with Adam as a single person. Nothing, nothing imperfect about what God had made. He had value and individuality and uniqueness and, and purpose. All of these things were built into his, his being from his creator. And then God gave him a spouse. 
that, that doesn't mean that his spouse gives him purpose or value or meaning or anything like that. So if you don't have a spouse or if you don't have children, uh, that, that's okay. These things don't give you meaning or purpose, and you're still part of a family. You're still a family unit, even if there's just one of you, because you're part of God's family. You're a child of God, and you're part of God's and, and are participating in God's small group called the Trinity. You knew I was going to get the Trinity into small groups, right? That was, this is designed into how God does things. Small groups are part of who He is. Now, most of us find ourselves in the position that Adam was in when he's naming the animals and he's, he's thinking about all these pairs and he thinks, where is one for me? And we, we have that longing for somebody who is like us, who can um, know us fully and, and love us still. And when, when Adam meets Eve... He says, at last, finally, you can read about it. Uh, we'll just go back to our, our uh, verse there um, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 to 25. The rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We long for somebody that's like us, that connects to us, can relate to us, likes our idiosyncrasies and weirdnesses and, and enjoys us. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They shall become one flesh. This is, uh, and it's, it's not an obscure concept when you think about it. It's not something that's hard to grasp to becoming one. I mean, it is kind of hard. It's really the essence of the Trinity, and it's complicated to think about, but it's not an obscure concept. We can, we can sense when a marriage is united, and, perp- and, and they have one purpose, and they're, they're moving in sync, and we can sense when a marriage is not really one flesh, you know? It's, it's the physical, emotional, and spiritual embodiment, really, of Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. Did you think of that? When Jesus created Adam and Eve, He created the opportunity for fulfilling the last six of the Ten Commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and while our, 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 our personhood is not incomplete when we are single, we still have the opportunity to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and we still have the opportunity to love uh, others. It's in marriage that we have that oneness that we can truly love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Adam says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's just like me. Unfortunately, we don't live in an Edenic home anymore. We live in a world that's filled with sin and has all the problems that come with it. Our our relationships are polluted by selfishness and our hearts are rotten with pride. That's the reality of the world we live in. And, And sin, it causes harm to us. It messes us up. Sin that other people commit against us and our own sin, it, it, it hurts us. But our sin also hurts our relationships. It hurts our spouses. It hurts our children. There's no such thing as a relationship that doesn't have sin in the mix, even, even a perfect marriage like mine. <laughs> There's no such thing as a relationship that doesn't have sin in the mix. So what does a successful relationship in a sinful world look like? Leslie Vernick, uh, an author and a counselor, um, she has three important aspects of healthy marriages that she describes. 
mutuality, reciprocity, and freedom are these three principles. And she says mutuality means that both partners in the relationship contribute to the care and maintenance of the relationship. Both partners bring to the relationship care, respect, and honesty. Both partners show remorse and repent when one or the other or both have done things that have harmed the other. Mutuality. Does that sound like a good part of of marriage? And then there's reciprocity. She says that this is a healthy relationship. uh, Sorry, a healthy relationship is one in which both partners give and both receive. Power and responsibility are shared, and the rules of the marriage are mutually made and adhered to. There is not a double standard where one person gets to have all the power and the other one takes all the responsibility. And then there's uh, freedom. All healthy adult relationships need freedom to be who God made them to be. Freedom to have their own feelings, speak their own thoughts, and disagree with one another without the fear of retaliation or danger. These are are three aspects of healthy relationships. A successful marriage, when you think about these these, um, principles that she describes, a successful marriage is marked by grace and forgiveness and humility and teachability. And when one of us speaks harmful words, because it happens... When we raise our voice in anger or cut somebody off or refuse to engage or ignore, then a humble spouse will take responsibility for their unkind and harmful behavior, and they'll repent. A successful relationship is marked by repentance and continual growth, always moving forward, always uh, learning more, always recognizing that we are not yet fulfilling Christ's perfect love for our spouse. That word repent, it's, it's a simple word. What does it mean? It, it, just, it just means to turn around. Or, or if you're in Pathfinders, you, you, you're supposed to do something like that, the, the about face. That's all it is. Repent is an about face. From where I was going to where I should be going. And, and it's that idea that I'm going to turn away from a harmful habit and I'm going to turn towards a a good habit, something that's loving and, uh, and, and relating well with my spouse. Repentance, this turning around is a prerequisite to every healthy relationship. Relationships with your spouse, relationship with your kids, relationships with your coworkers. And it's, it's kind of opposed to the sinful tendency of pride that we have. Repentance isn't a natural thing that we jump into easily. But we can't escape the reality that our hearts are naturally bent towards selfishness and pride and self-sufficiency. And so we can't escape the fact that we are going to harm our friends and our family, our partners and our children. That's going to happen. And if that's going to happen, then we need to be like David, a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart that quickly recognizes our sin and repents. Repentance is a prerequisite for every healthy relationship. Now, if you recognize your, your condition and you repent of it, you admit that you're wrong, then you know what happens? Your spouse will quickly forgive because it's so refreshing to see somebody admit they're wrong. They'll quickly forgive your children. They'll say, it's okay, Papa. It's okay, Mama. I, I know this because I have to repent a lot. <laughs> and... And it's something that actually binds your relationship together. Have you noticed this when you repent, that you're, you actually grow in intimacy? I think it's a beautiful thing that God designed, that even sin can lead to oneness 
when there's repentance in the mix. Now, we've each had plenty of experiences with sin in relationships. Whether you're a child who's argued with somebody recently or or, or been hit by somebody recently, or an adult who's heard some angry words spoken to you or who's spoken some angry words or some nasty thing about somebody, um, we all have experience with this, don't we? And 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. This is a universal problem. Everybody's got this problem. And, and he says that God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Would you like a way out? Would you like a way out from the, the bad cycles and patterns that you have in your marriage and in your family life? Would you like a relationship with your spouse and with your children that's thriving? In uh, The Home Missionary a journal that was written a long time ago. We don't have it around today, but 1889, June, uh, June 1, uh, an article entitled The Home Influence. Ellen White wrote that if ever there was a time when every house should be a house of prayer, it is now. And yet it is in this time of fearful peril. Some who profess to be Christians have no family altar. I know of nothing that causes me so great sadness as a prayerless home. See, the first and primary solution to the problem that plagues our relationships whether you're single, married, married with kids, divorced, remarried, whatever your scenario is, this, the first and primary solution to the problems that plague these relationships is a personal walk with God. When my feet come to the altar of Jesus and my knees kneel down before the Father, that's where my, my life comes from. I have to drink at the fountain of living water if I'm going to impart blessing to the relationships that I'm part of. And when you make prayer a priority, please, please remember this, you cannot change anybody but you. So if your spouse is not making prayer a priority, that's not your problem, that's theirs. If you make prayer a priority, and hopefully they will too, then your marriage can be a place where you pray together. And then your family can be a place where you can pray together. And and you'll be a praying family and a praying marriage. I think that's an ideal place to end up. But you start with yourself. But I guarantee that being a praying person, drinking from the fountain of living water, spending time in God's Word, that's just the beginning. And, and the reason is that we don't understand our own hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We don't even know our own hearts. Do you, do you remember um, a recent time, it probably won't be very long ago, that you lied to yourself? I mean, your brain, your brain lied to yourself about something you did. No? Nobody Nobody willing to confess lying to yourself? Okay. <laughs> I have, I'm sure, recently. It, it's something that we do. We justify things that we shouldn't justify. We, we tell ourselves negative things about ourselves or negative things about others that just aren't true or, or half-truths at best. Too often we look at, back at something we've said or done and we see our actions and we hear our words and we think to ourselves, yeah, that was the right thing to do or the right thing to say, even if it left our children cowering and our spouse disheartened. How do, we, how do we lie to ourselves about our actions and say, 
think that we are acting like God even. We're a godly person when we do or say this or hold this standard up or whatever. And the result is meanness and unkindness and harshness that God would never condone. And yet somehow we, we are able to justify that in our minds. We don't even understand our own self. And let's be honest with ourselves. Because it's so easy to deceive ourselves and behave terribly while thinking we're behaving like God, we need a mirror. We need somebody to, to feed back to us the reality of our, ourselves, a third party, you might say, somebody that can short-circuit the process that, that we're in, the cycles that we're in. And these stakes in our marriages and our families, these stakes are so high. How we relate to our children is how our children will think about God. That is a huge bar. There, there, none of us are, are going to reach that bar perfectly. And that means that's a big deal. That's, that's a, a high stakes, right? And then our relationships with our spouse, so important. The stakes are so high. And the deception that we have in our own hearts is so thorough that we can't afford to assume that our, our marriages are healthy or our families are thriving. We can't, we can't afford to just make assumptions and say, well, I think it's pretty good. We can't afford to think that we actually understand our spouse's feelings or that we understand the hearts of our children. And we can't assume that we even know our own hearts. And so, so we need to pray. We need to ask God to search our hearts and we need to humble ourselves and we need to ask for some outside scrutiny. A healthy relationship invites other people in. One of the best things you can do for your marriage and for your parenting is to go to somebody that's outside your marriage and say, I need some help. Is that a humbling thing to do? That's a humbling thing to do. You know, it could be from a book. I'd recommend that you read a new book on marriage, relationships, parenting, communication, conflict resolution, some, some relationship-related topic every year. That's not too much to ask. Is it a new book? Once, once a year, a new book on relationships. It would also be good to uh, participate in some form of a seminar. Uh, you know, the, there's women's retreats and men's retreats that the conference holds, or, or there's a Weekend to Remember seminar every year down in, in uh, Coeur d'Alene that you could attend uh, with your spouse. These are things that, that add um, spiritual vigor and, and renew your, uh, your commitment and passion for each other and also give you some insights that you wouldn't have had before. You might join a small group that emphasizes marriage relationships or parenting. And if your cycles in your relationship are so bad that, that there's contempt and anger just, just seething in your, your relationship, then you might need a counselor, a professional that can help you and guide you together um, to, to resolve some of these things. A biblical counselor, somebody maybe who knows some cognitive behavioral therapy, that's the stuff that really works. It's uh, based on biblical principles. But I'd like to, to, to dispel a myth because this myth exists in some of our hearts. It's, it's the natural thing that comes from pride. And that myth says that a strong person or a strong man specifically, uh, some of us men like to think this, a strong man is a man that stands alone. But that's not where strength comes from. The mark of a strong person is not their independence, but their interdependence. Great leaders 
they don't lead alone. Great leaders surround themselves with people who are better at things than they are. And we need people that are better at things than we are. And we look back at our past lives. You can, you can see the, the history that we've had. You, know, you look back at your parents' history and your grandparents' history in marriage. And, and your marriage probably has some of the same negative patterns that your parents and, and, and your grandparents had. And the reality is you just don't know how to resolve that problem. Neither did your parents. Neither did your, did your grandparents. You need somebody outside in order to, to help you to... to Get past some of those problems that uh, you bring with you into the marriage. That, that's just a reality of sin. There's nothing to be ashamed of in particular in your own heart. The, the problems we face are common to everybody. So, we, so nobody should be looking down at you and saying, oh, he's particularly bad, right? <laughs> nobody should be saying that about any one of us in here. We all have the same problems. In, in fact, I would love for our church to be a place where we don't look down at problems and, and accuse people of, of badness or whatever. Oh, look at that marriage. That one's, right? And, you know, we have a fear of that, don't we? We have a fear of bringing ourselves and our reality of, of our family life into the public view because what will people think? That's a fear that I have with my family. I'm in the public eye a lot. And, and my kids um, are, are kind of in that mix too. And, and you guys are thinking, well, how does he parent? <laughs> how, does, how does my wife parent? And so it's something I think about. But it's, it shouldn't be the culture of our church to look down our noses at other people. We need to have a culture that says, wow, look at that family in need who's seeking help. Good for you. That's so wonderful. I love seeing that. Wouldn't that be nice? A church that you can come to with your real problems, your real self, and, and that church just embraces you and loves you and says, good for you, man. God's growing you. That's so wonderful to see. Wouldn't that be fun? I'd like to be a part of a church like that. You know, Joel and I were married at the end of September in 2005. Isn't she pretty? Who is that skinny kid? And then uh, by October 2005, we were pretty sure we had no idea what we were doing. About a week later. <laughs> and that's the reality of marriage. It, you jump into something that you have no idea what you're doing in, and, and you need outside input. Now, if you're considering marriage, or if you uh, have recently been married, or uh, you, you haven't really had a lot of input into your marriage yet, and you've been married for a while, man, it's a really good idea to do some premarital counseling, or at least a, um, a, some kind of assessment that helps you understand the good principles that, that are there in marriage. I mean, there's finance, and there's spirituality, and there's individuality, and there's um, careers, and there's uh, home life, and, and there's what you do with toilet paper, and, and not to mention all the other complexities of joining two lives together. There's a lot of stuff in being married we need help with, and it's not bad that we need help. It's actually a good thing that interdependence is something God designed. This is kind of what small groups are about, interdependence. We need help. And, uh, and that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. If you're considering uh, a, or thinking that you might need some, some of that input into your own experience in marriage, I'd like to recommend Symbus. 
Uh, there's a couple others. Prepare and Rich is a good one. Um, but Simvis is, is one that I've uh, enjoyed and appreciated. It, it's a, an assessment that starts you out asking some questions and giving you some tools for dealing with communication and conflict and money and all these different aspects of marriage. Um, so that's one that you might consider um, uh, taking part in. Now, by our third year of marriage, Joelle and I had, uh, we'd started developing these unhealthy patterns. We all have them in our our relationships. And uh, what had been confusion early on, trying to figure out this marriage thing, uh, had started to turn into some deep frustrations. We were still deeply in love, but we were also deeply frustrated at, at certain points in our marriage. I'm sure that you can relate, or at least have had some experience in your marriage where you can relate to that idea. And so we decided that we were going to go to a professional counselor. And uh, oh, I just forgot her name. Very nice lady uh, down in California, Southern California. No, no, Sacramento area. And we went to her for, I don't know, six, eight, ten sessions, something like that. Um, Joelle saw her sometimes by herself. I saw her sometimes. And then we saw, saw her together. And it was a really fascinating uh, opportunity for us to explore ourselves. She held a mirror up, essentially. She listened to us and she said, this is what I'm hearing. And we got to see who we were like, what we were acting like, and what it looked like to the other person's eyes. She helped us to gain some skills in listening, a really important skill in any relationship. She helped us to learn how to date each other again. Uh, If you didn't know, dating doesn't stop when you get married. You keep pursuing, you keep romancing, you keep dating. It's a good thing. It's hard when you've got little kids. I get that. But it's important. So if you need somebody to watch your kids while you date your spouse, then give us a call and expect us to give you a call. Um, <laughs> now, our, our marriage wasn't on the rocks. We weren't, we weren't thinking of separation, a divorce, or anything like this. But we saw we needed outside input, and we asked for a professional counselor. And I'm not ashamed of that. I'm proud that that was our younger selves saying we had a need. It's not a bad thing. In our fourth year of marriage, we attended a Weekend to Remember retreat in uh, the Sacramento area. And Weekend to Remember is put on by Family Life, a really fantastic organization. If you don't know them already, uh, you should look up familylife.org. I included a little brochure with some resources. And on one side of it, nope, it's not there. Oh, yeah, it is. Right under Family Resources is a a URL, familylife.org.com. Um, and they've got a shop with lots of resources, and they've got videos, and they've got tons of ideas and stuff. Um, but they also put on all over the country these Weekend to Remember. Have you been to a Weekend to Remember? Raise your hand if you've been to a Weekend to Remember. Yay! We've got some compatriots here. I, I highly recommend it. It's just down in Coeur d'Alene. It's a weekend. It's a fantastic experience. And in that process, you get to hear about stories of people who have experienced challenges worse than your marriage has experienced, and they have overcome, and they've found uh, love and oneness and intimacy, and it's, it's exciting, and it renews your, ex- your experience with God, and it renews your experience with your spouse. It's, it's a good thing to invest in. Joelle and I have what I think is a pretty healthy marriage. Maybe you looking in from the outside see something different. If you do, please tell me. Um, but I, I think we've got a pretty healthy marriage, and I know that we are always needing input. We're always needing to grow. We need, to, we need help to get back to the pattern of oneness that God's designed for us. And, and it, you might find that, that your marriage, it kind, of, it kind of goes this exciting growth and then plateau. 
and maybe even decline, and then some exciting growth, and then plateau, and, right? That, that's okay to have some of those patterns in your marriage. But if this is a period of decline in your marriage, I'd encourage you to, to reinvest. Make this a new time of, of growth and excitement. Now, our vision statement of healthy relationships includes, I think, an expectation that this church will prioritize and value people seeking help. That culture that I mentioned, let's read it again. We see healthy relationships, families, siblings, marriages, friends, and dating couples where God's self-sacrificing love is evident in our interactions with each other. Evident. This is how people see us from the outside, that God's love is here. In the Adventist home, um, also in manuscript number 170, Ellen White says, God wants the home to be the happiest place on earth. The very symbol of the home in heaven, bearing the marriage responsibilities in the home, linking their interests with Jesus Christ, leaning upon his arm and his assurance, husband and wife may share a happiness in this union that the angels of God commend. Can you envision it? A home where the, the husband is excited, eager to come home. And, and a home where the wife is excited and the children are, are anticipating the father's return. This is a place where... Children look to their parents as the best and noblest role models and where the parents know that they're raising their children to love and honor God and their fellow man. A home where each spouse is known deeply and loved selflessly. A home where the Spirit of God dwells and angels are proud to spend their time in. Would you like that to be your home? If you don't have this kind of home, then let's get started. Let's figure out how to grow there because Where you are does not determine where you're going to be. Where you are is just the starting spot. The vision is healthy healthy relationships, and that's where we want to end up. Now, in our strategic planning session, several people suggested that we have some kind of a training to develop counselors or marriage mentors or something, and I'd like to suggest, and and there's this this uh, bulletin insert I handed out, I'd like to suggest that, that we could use a few marriage mentors in this church. In fact, the SIMBIS program, it stands for Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. It's an assessment, but it also has tools for marriage mentors. If you would like to be a marriage mentor, just check that little box beside the SIMBIS certified facilitator, and we can talk about that, how that might work. It's not a guarantee that you're going to do it. That's just a, I'm interested in learning about it checkbox, okay? So don't, it's not a big hurdle. It doesn't cost you any money to put the little checkbox on there. And you don't have to be a perfect marriage in order to be a marriage mentor. You just have to have a little bit of life experience and have f- faced a few of your own problems and, and have come through that with God's help. That, that's the prerequisite for marriage mentors. Maybe you'd like to take the survey And it says saving your marriage before it starts, but the book is saving your marriage before it starts. Seven questions you should ask before and after you marry. So it's perfect for everybody. My wife and I have done it, and and we find that they've got some specific tools for after marriage, and they've got some even more unique tools that they that they work with if you've been married more than once. Um, So it's it's a a great assessment and a great um, tool for a marriage mentor. We we need. We need couples where we can have that third party. Maybe you see a need uh, to invest in your relationship and you'd like to know who can help you. We need some people in, our, in our, our church group that can raise their hands and say, you know, our home is available. Why don't you come over and hang out with us? We'll watch a video together. We'll talk. We'll pray. Wouldn't that be nice? 
If there's also the opportunity to, to maybe host a small group. If you're interested in maybe being a, lar- a larger group rather than one-on-one counseling type of a, uh, of a situation or mentorship situation, uh, you could join a small group. We, we need some people that would be willing to host something like uh, this one's a family life, the art of marriage. It's a small group kit that's already pre-designed. It's a six-part program. Um, maybe that's something that you'd be interested in hosting. Well, check that little box. Or maybe you'd like to participate or join one of those. Check that box. And just put your name and info down so we can communicate. I- I'd like to start a pattern where this church is saying relationships are important and we're going to grow. We're going to start with the most basic small group and we're going to thrive there. How would you like to see that? I need to end with the gospel because that's where we always need to end. It needs to be the beginning and the middle and the end. Genesis 2.25, the conclusion of this oneness idea is that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And you're wondering how in the world I'm going to get the gospel out of this. It's okay. These were emotionally, spiritually, physically naked people that were completely open to the other person, and completely unashamed. And the truth is, we are not easily, uh, we don't easily bear our souls with other people. We, we hide. That's what sin does. It makes us hide, and it, and it covers us with shame. That's what happened with Adam and Eve when they sinned. They ran, they hid, they covered. And, and that's where our relationships often are. And whether you're single or married, you probably are longing for this kind of intimacy that Adam and Eve had, this naked but not ashamed idea. Jesus says that you are his special bride. And, and he longs for this intimacy. He already knows you. He saw you when you were born. He made you before you were even born. He witnessed your birth. He looked at you and and, and clapped when you had your first steps. He enjoyed your first babbling words. Jesus knew every aspect of your growing up and every part of your life since. He was there when you were hurt for the first time and he felt that pain. And he was there when you hurt somebody else for the first time and he felt that pain too. He knows every aspect of your life, every aspect of your heart, every aspect of your mind. And guess what? He loves you still. In fact, he loves every part of you, and he sees the person he's making you into, that noble, godly person that he is designing you to be. He loves you. He gave his life for you so that you could have not the life of sin and death, but the good life, the life that is filled with his spirit. And you know, he invites you to know him too. He knows you intimately, and he's offered himself in intimate relationship with you. In his word and through your prayer life, he's going to lay himself bare, so to speak, emotionally and spiritually. He's going to allow you to get to know him, to fully know him in that intimate relationship. So even if you don't have that in a marriage partner right now, you can have that intimacy with Jesus. Let's start there. Let's start before the throne of God. And, And then what happens is that love begins to pour out from the relationship we have with Jesus to those important relationships in our lives. Because as 1 John tells us, we love because he first loved us.